say. Let's get after it. All the Iowa results are now in. We actually broke the news to the candidate with the razor-thin lead a short while ago, right here during a town hall. The Iowa Democratic Party just released the final batch of results from the caucuses. 100% of precincts reporting. You are holding a narrow lead of a tenth of a percentage point over Senator Sanders on the state delegate equivalence, which is the uh, metric that we use to determine a winner. What is your reaction? Well, it's fantastic news uh, to hear that we won. Um, <laughs> Senator Sanders clearly had a great night, too, and I congratulate him and, and his supporters. We won, says Pete Buttigieg. But just an hour before, Bernie Sanders said the same thing, standing alongside Anderson. We won in Iowa. We ended up winning the popular vote by 6,000. And I suspect that at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Buttigieg and I will have an equal number of, um, of delegates to the National Convention. Now, the popular vote is not the metric that counts. Regardless, a CNN analysis shows errors in the counts that were reported by the Iowa Democratic Party. That's not good for anybody. The head of the DNC, Tom Perez, says he wants a re-canvas of the results. But there's a catch on that, all right? Candidates have until 1 p.m. Eastern to file a request for re-canvassing or a recount. The key word is candidates. Buttigieg suggested to me that his campaign is not going to push the issue. Bernie Sanders seemed to suggest the same. So what happens now? Let's bring in David Chalian and Abby Phillip. It's good to have you both. Thank you for joining me, especially at the hour. David, uh, what did our analysis show? Well, it showed a couple of different uh, findings where the numbers didn't fully add up. I'll give you one example uh, that it found. Uh, In one county, uh, it found that the total number of people in the final round of voting. You remember Iowa votes in two rounds, that initial preference round and then in that final round after the reallocation. It showed that the total number of people in the final round of voting was greater than the total of number of people in the initial round of voting. Well, that's not possible if the rules are followed the way it is. You can't add people. The doors close right before that initial preference, and nobody is supposed to be added in the middle of the process. Even if babies were born, they are not born voting (laughs) age. That is correct. They are not born voting age. And so that's just one example. So those kinds of things, uh, you know, there are questions being raised. And this is why Chairman Perez is saying, uh, let's have a re-canvas. To your point, though, that's not how the rules go. He, he's an outside voice. He's the chairman of the party. Obviously, he's trying to have influence on this. Which, by the way, respect for Perez, because, you know, some would say, let's just let's just get out of here. Let it go. Right. It's Iowa's problem. Let it go. He isn't. Yeah. He's trying to do quality control on this. So good for him. But the problem is, what's the rule? You need a candidate has to request it. And as you just noted, I mean, my takeaway in terms of just the day news of day from these town halls was what you noted, which is that Sanders said to Anderson, you know, we're in New Hampshire now. Let's move on to New Hampshire. Uh, Pete Buttigieg to you uh, said, I'll leave that to the party. Well, that's not the way it's really done. So neither seem interested. And I don't think any other candidate is going to be all that interested. Abby, what do you think? Warren or Biden? What do they have to lose by no saying, one. I don't buy it, I No one wants to look under the hood of the Iowa caucuses right now. I mean, I think people recognize that this is a messy process. And I think both Sanders and Buttigieg in particular understand that if you open the door to some kind of re-canvas or even a recount, 
you don't really know how that's going to end up for you when the margin is this narrow, a tenth of a percentage point. So neither party is particularly interested in going that far. And all the others, they don't have much to gain. I mean, Joe Biden is not going to to, to catapult from fourth place to third place because of a recount. Uh, and I think the same is true of, of the two other uh, candidates in the race. But, you know, the fact that, of, that we found irregularities in our canvas of the results should not be a surprise. If you were watching our election coverage uh, on Monday night, we were in these these caucuses right. and you can see people counting one by one by one. That is human. That is ripe for human error. Right. I, I talked to Iowa Democrats this week who've done caucuses for me, for many decades, who actually love the caucus process. But they told me that's how it is. Mm. It's a little bit uh, not 100 percent. It's not a science. It's a little bit of an art. Yeah, but and nobody wants to really get to that kind deep of be into it. The irregularity is the fact that I wear the same thing every night. This is called wrong. If the number isn't the same in I both mean, places, people are you've got a problem. counting by hand. They're counting heads. And that is how you create errors. People walk out from round one to round so, two. So you're going to move on. But you're going to know it's there. not completely accurate. Fine. So the state of play stays the same. You move into New Hampshire. Um, the question is, how does it play into New Hampshire? I have to tell you, I did Judge's town hall here. We've all been with him plenty out there. There was energy and excitement because of how he did in Iowa. Uh, what can that mean? Yeah, I mean, listen, he's having the best week of his campaign, right? I mean, it, we'll get past that deadline tomorrow just to make sure that nobody is calling for a re-canvas. But 1 p.m. tomorrow 1 p. Eastern. Or to later today, I guess. So right. 1 p.m. Eastern. But... You know, once we are past that deadline and the party says 100 percent of the vote is in, Pete Buttigieg is going to be the winner of the Iowa caucuses, even by that one tenth of one percent. I just want to note also on the Bernie Sanders thing. He's, you heard him say, I won the popular vote by six million votes. You noted that's not the metric, Chris. What he says uh, when he says he's six thousand votes ahead in the popular vote, that's the initial round. That's not even the final round. He was ahead there, too, but by a narrower margin. Do you think he winds so, up with the same number of delegates, the SDE acronym? I think they will either split it evenly or maybe Buttigieg has one or two more, or a, but, but probably an even split. I, but to your point, Buttigieg has had a really good week, probably a bit muted than he normally would have just because of the way this was handled. Sanders today announces $25 million raised in the month right. of January, his best fundraising month of the entire campaign. That is a person who is building a campaign for the long haul, durability. Right. $18 is the average donation. I mean, it's just, it is mind-blowing in terms of how he is able to build, succeed in Iowa, come in New Hampshire and be well-positioned. He, he's somebody who's really building uh, for the long haul You here. have to wonder for Sanders if there's a little bit of a feeling that Iowa keeps slipping through his fingers. This is the second time that he's gotten so, so close. I don't think necessarily uh, that it matters whether he's one-tenth of a point up or Buttigieg is one-tenth of a point up. To David's point, he... He is in some ways impervious to some of these news cycles because his base is so with him. But I think as a matter of pride and a matter of sort of political bragging rights, Bernie Sanders wanted to be able to win the Iowa caucuses and to uh, have the Iowa caucuses cement his movement. He wasn't quite able to get, to get there, but I don't think that that's the end for him. It, true, there's a long true. way to go. But as we all know, perception is often reality in politics. And whereas in 2016, it was, wow, do you think he can win? Now it's, 
oh, yeah, we knew he was going to kill it in Iowa, and we know he's going to kill it in New Hampshire also. I mean, he's in a totally different position now. He is the presumptive favorite coming into New Hampshire, and the only question is, will he sustain in Nevada a couple weeks after that and then South Carolina immediately after? How close is Buttigieg to him here? Right. If Buttigieg, who was not riding second in a lot of the New Hampshire polls, if Iowa now catapults him and this becomes, out of the first two contests, a Buttigieg-Sanders race— that's a whole new dynamic in this race and, that we right. just haven't and seen. And there are some indications that a little bit of that is happening. I mean, the Monmouth poll that Tease. came out today. Oh, today. Tease. Oh. You will be talking oh, about yeah. later in the show. Gonna, we do have some new poll information. <laughs> they put it up. All right, so listen. We have implications here. Uh, it's been said uh, very often that uh, Iowa may not pick your winner, although it often has for the Democrats, but it also picks your losers. So what are the the numbers right now in New Hampshire? What's the state of play? We're going to take a look at that with what the data tells us, but also what the state of play tells us with these two powerhouses. Next. As I kept Abby Phillip from saying before we went to break, there is a new poll about the state of play in New Hampshire. It comes from Monmouth, and it shows Sanders and Buttigieg in a tight race for the top. Sanders on top, no surprise. Not seeing Warren, maybe Biden in second, big Surprise. Let's discuss. Aisha Moody Mills, Hillary Rosen joined me, David and Abby. Uh, so let me loop you guys in here because you're new. Um, at the top of the poll, Hillary, you agree, Bernie on top, a show of uh, recognized and uh, familiar strength here as a neighboring senator. But who's in second? Surprise. No, I mean, you know, it does show momentum as is is important coming out of Iowa. That is historic. And, and why should this be any different? I think it's interesting because we also saw a Boston Globe poll tonight. And um, I don't know the the um, numbers from the Monmouth poll for second choice, but the Boston Globe poll, similar numbers to Monmouth on the top choice. But again, this race is not breaking down ideologically the, the second choice for Biden voters uh, is Warren and Buttigieg. The second choice for Warren voters is not Bernie Sanders. The second choice for Warren voters is, is Pete Buttigieg. And, 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 um, and so I think that what we're seeing is these voters are struggling to figure out who the best person is to beat Donald Trump. And we can say all we want. They're figuring out the progressive lane versus the moderate lane. I just don't think that's how they're seeing it. These numbers don't play out that way. Aisha, um, Bernie Sanders was asked something tonight about who his running mate might be. I want to play it and get your take on what that does for his chances. Listen to this. What I want from a vice president is somebody whose worldview is similar to mine. And there are a lot of, you know, uh, brilliant women out there who hold that that view. So uh, we will be looking at that. So can you commit to saying you would have... You would want to have a, a woman vice president to, but I, or, know, a, or a person of color? Yeah, yeah I don't want to commit. You know, it's always, I don't want to commit. But, you know, my inclination is to say yes. 
I mean, uh, that's, what do you think, Aisha? at this point, that's kind of obvious. There is absolutely no way that Democrats are going to get excited and jazzed up about two white men, particularly two white men of a certain age, um, who are running for president simply because we are so used to seeing ourselves reflected in the makeup of this party that prides itself in being diverse um, and wanting to be inclusive. Even when we struggle at it, um, there's a lot of intentionality that goes into making sure that people feel uh, like they have a voice and a place at the table. So, yeah, of course. Of course, he's going to pick a uh, he's going to need to at least pick a woman or a person of color if we are to really ignite the turnout that we need in November uh, to really dump Donald Trump. And that's the thing that we all need to be talking about. Voters are confused and they're thinking about, quote unquote, electability. What's really happening is that in their guts, um, they want to be moved. They want to be invigorated. They want to be excited. And so um, as we continue to profile these candidates, I think that that's what people are trying to feel is they want to feel something. And whoever the VP is, is certainly going to need to evolve some kind of emotion if we're going to get people to come out in record-breaking numbers, mm. which is what's going to be required to get rid of Donald Trump in the White but House. That, but that wasn't his standard, which is interesting. Uh, I, yeah. I, I might have said, if, you know, might have been um, interested in him saying, I'd like somebody um, uh, who ha- helps challenge me on my thinking, who broadens the party, who, mm. you know, brings a lot of other things to the table. He he actually said said the opposite of that. And I I think that that that's I've never heard Bernie Sanders say that he wants to be challenged about (laughs) anything. And I've been interviewing (laughs) him for a long time. That's That's why he that's the downside of the authenticity. And he's got a problem with race, too, and he believes that it's right. Um, Well, all right. So let's uh, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, you know, one way uh, let let me put a little bit of a um, skepticism on this. Typical Democrats. Can't figure out how to win. Can't figure out what you really want. You want to feel, but you also want electability. <laughs> this is the disadvantage against the Republican Party. They are all in. They are behind their guy. He has checked the boxes. There is none of this feeling versus something else. There is directness. What, th- th- what you're describing about the Republican Party behind their guy in this election is the reason why uh, a president who on paper right, has not had majority approval in Mm -hmm. this country the entirety of his presidency, you would look at that and say, he has a tough battle for re-election, and it will be. It's going to be a close race, right? But the reason you look and say, President Trump, especially now, he's quitted, he's emboldened, his numbers are at the high point right now, he is, as the election year is getting underway, positioned in a way that he can be the favorite for re-election here because of that rock-solid unification of his party. I mean, it's just, there's no crack in it. And that's why, look, because you, know, uh, you could say, oh, that, that's, uh, th- that's paradoxical. He just went through his worst trial, literally, right, trial, and he's at his highest popularity. Shouldn't he be at his lowest? No, because those who supported him are now behind him more than ever. Yeah, and I don't know that Trump supporters are not with him because they he makes them feel something. I mean, I think I think that's actually that actually is why they are with him. Trump is a, a, a sort of cultural phenomenon, uh, particularly among white people in this country, and I do think that that is about how that he makes them feel about politics and about their place in this country, and that has almost nothing to do actually with his policies because his policies were antithetical to a lot of Republican values for a long time, and th- that's why I think that when we look at what's going on with the Democratic Party, and you know, I think Aisha's right in some sense that uh, that voters of color do want to see their their identities reflected in their sure. politics. At the same time, 
I, I don't necessarily think that identity is going to be sufficient for those voters because look at what has happened mm-hmm. in the Democratic primary. You know, voters of color are not gravitating toward necessarily the candidates of color. Right. They're gravitating toward the old white guy, yes. Joe Biden. And then they're gravitating toward the other old yeah. white guy, we, Joe Bi- uh, um, Bernie Sanders. Right. And so there's something else that is going on here. I think voters are practical. They want people who speak to other values that they have, which are... Um, how the, the government works for them, how the right. economy works for them. I agree and that's, with you. The, that's the code the Democrats I agree. have to crack here. I agree. That's why I'm playing with a duality. Because with Trump, the way he makes people feel is how he won. Yes. On the Democratic side, you can make people feel, they can resonate off something that may not be the right person to beat Donald Trump. And as you say, that is a code that must be cracked. All right, let's take a break here. Thank you, everybody, for being part of the conversation. Hillary Rosen didn't like three quarters of what I just said. She'll get a chance to come back at me. All right, now, uh, this idea of, you know, look, I acquitted the president because he learned his lesson, okay? And, you know, that State of the Union, that's who he really is. That's who he'll be now. Boy, were they wrong. They have unleashed the Kraken, and the proof came today. He learned his lesson, they told you. He will be the uniter. That was what was portrayed in those parts of the State of the Union, said others. But we all know what's true in life has to be true in politics at a certain point. You are what you do. And President Trump showed you who he is by what he did. We first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. Dirty cops, bad people. It was evil. It was corrupt leakers and liars. It was the top scum. Had I not fired James Comey, who was a disaster, by the way, Uh, It's possible I wouldn't even be standing here right now. I fired that sleazebag, and little did we know we were running against some very, very bad and evil people. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. But I doubt she prays at all. Now, you might say, well, this was just a fit of peak. He was at a prayer breakfast right before this, okay? When President Clinton went to the prayer breakfast, he was once again contrite. He too was upset about what was done to him. He too thought that it was wrongful. But again, he apologized to the country and he wanted to try to bring people together and he leaned on God and the grace thereof uh, to try to unite again. Here is what this president said at the prayer breakfast. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you, when they know that that's not so. So many people have been hurt, and we can't let that go on. Three. Scott Jennings. Uh, I wanted to uh, have just you and me to have this conversation because I don't want any yelling and groupthink. We'll get to the political implications afterwards. Uh, Would you have said what the president said today at the prayer breakfast? Uh, No, I I have a different theory on public communications. It's not how I would comport myself necessarily. But then again, yeah. Hold on, hold on. I just want to go step by step. You wouldn't say it that Mm -hmm. way. 
not just because you have a different communications theory. You use the word comportment. And I think what you're trying to communicate, please clarify, is you don't want to behave that way, especially at a place that is about prayer and unity through faith, right? Well, I, I mean, if I were speaking at a prayer breakfast, I would probably talk about the issue that matters most to me in this world of politics, and that's abortion. That's probably the only thing I would talk about. But I would say I'm not Donald Trump, and I have not endured a three-year campaign to delegitimize my presidency and to throw me out of office. And I think the reaction, honestly, Chris, he had today was an understandable human reaction to a three-year campaign to delegitimize him. Is it the right thing to do? No. If I could wave a magic wand and make everybody nice to each other, I'd do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. But that's not the world we live in. And I honestly, I'm willing to give the president a little latitude on his attitude today after, after everything that's happened. Now, the last part is the truth. You say you wouldn't do it. You say it's not how it should be. But then you say you'll give him a break. And you know what, Scott? You and the people in your party who are in Congress do that every time. And that's why he says, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and my supporters wouldn't leave. How does that make you feel about somebody as a person of faith, that this president mocks people who use their faith to guide their behavior, who said that Romney used his faith as a crutch? You and I both know as flawed believers, that's exactly what faith is supposed to be. But you all excuse it because he's in power and you want him to stay there. Is that okay? Yeah, I do want him to stay in power because the alternative, at the same time he was making that speech this morning, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who I guess is now potentially the front runner for the Democratic nomination for president, was over on The View talking about abortion on demand, okaying partial birth abortion, abortion anytime and any place. And so if you're a Christian, if you're a conservative who believes in those values and your choices are Donald Trump, who sometimes says things you don't like and you wouldn't do it that way, versus rule by a party that would allow abortion on demand and install federal judges who would allow it, this is no choice at all. You go with, you go with your gut on but policy you know that's and you a go lie, with your right? faith and your morals on policy. It's not a lie. Right, Watch so you're going to be about faith and morals morning, and then you're going to lie. Said, I saw the clip the, to prepare for the segment, abortion. Scott. He did not say abortion on demand whenever you want it, wherever you want it. Let me ask you something. How do you reconcile? He did. How do you? I, this is why I just I wanted you and me. I am not lying to you, Chris he Cuomo. Didn't, Scott, and we both know it. And look, no, I'm not saying, look, it's a lie to say that Pete Buttigieg or anybody in the Democratic Party who's running for president wants to have abortion whenever you want it at any time. Let's pull out the baby and let's look at it and then throw it in the garbage. You guys say this and you say it for the ugliest of reasons. You know what the law is. You know you couldn't do that by law. The Supreme Court standard wouldn't allow it. You know what the viability standard is. And so at the same time, you want them to say, this is Scott Jennings and these other guys, you know, yeah, they're rooted in that Christianity. You know, that's good, man. That WWJD, you know, that's good for us. I know we're supposed to be secular, but I take comfort in that. And then you pass off a position like that that you know isn't true. You know no Democrat says that you should be able to get an abortion anytime before the kid goes to kindergarten. Why scare people like that? You're, a, you're exaggerating. B, the question he was asked this morning was, what is your line? Well, now, I'm exaggerating. And his line I'm exaggerating. Was, <laughs> he, 
Yeah, you are. Yeah. He said his his the question he was asked yeah. is, what is the line? What's the line you draw? And the and the answer he gave was very simple. I will trust any woman to make the decision anytime she wants to make it. Now that's a perfectly legitimate position for a Democrat no. primary for president. He said but you I trust what a the woman to make the decision about her body, not the government. He said that he believes the woman should make the choice, not the government, about what she can do with her body and when. Didn't say I'm going to get rid of the legal standard. I think you're scaring people, but now we've talked about that subject. That's fine. I get that it works for you guys. That's fine. Um, but here's what I don't understand working for you. That president mocks people like you, Scott. He thinks that you are silly to ask a God for forgiveness. He told you, I have never asked God for forgiveness. And he doesn't believe in people who say they pray for people they don't like because he thinks the notion of wanting something good to happen to someone you don't like is silly. And he thinks that Romney leaning on his faith to make a decision, such a crutch. All of that should disgust you. Not just, I don't like how he said it. If, a, if Pete Buttigieg said today, look at you, Scott Jennings, leaning on your faith is a crutch, praying for people that you say you don't agree with and mocked it, what would you be saying about Pete Buttigieg, Scott? He does mock people. People who have come to him and challenged, you know, he's tried to make biblical arguments for his pro-life position, and he mocks people who challenge him. He does, he does mock people who rely on their faith to inform their politics. Look, I don't believe Donald Trump is a perfect person, a perfect Christian, and I don't believe he believes he is one either. And I will pray, and, I, and listen, and I will pray for every uh, him every day so that he can be a better Christian. But I will tell you this, I did not vote for him and I am not going to vote for him because I want him to teach me how to be a better Christian. I want him to enact policies that I think better reflect my values, which are informed by my faith and informed so let by me my ask conservative beliefs. So if he says, no Democrats so let me ask you something. Me that. If he said people who believe in religion, oh, I want to ask you something because I know how you're going to answer it and I just want to see how it lasts over time. If the president were to say, look, I, I don't believe in God. I think this is silly hocus pocus. Uh, and these Christians who do this, you know, look, they want to do it, but it, I don't get it. I've never gotten it. But I'll give you the judges. And if I have a chance to put a judge on there, that will change Roe v. Wade. I'll do it because I want your votes. Would you vote for him? I mean, if the choice is a pro-life policy versus a non-pro-life no, 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 no. opponent. It's a yeah, yes, no question. It's a yes, no question. Because Buttigieg says he is a Christian and understands his faith and its teaching, but he'll follow the law. But I just want to be clear. So the president could come out and say, hey, Jennings, you're a Christian. <laughs> you're an idiot to believe in that hocus pocus. But I'll give you your judges. Just give me your vote. You'd still vote for him, right? Yes, I would vote for a pro-life candidate for president over a yeah. pro-abortion candidate for president every day. No, let's Every say he's not. He's not pro-life. Let's say he says, I don't care about pro-life. I think this is silly. This is you religious nonsense people, witchcraft, basically. But I'll give you the judges because I want your vote. You'd be OK with it. And I think that's fine. Just stop saying that your party makes faith paramount in the positions and that character counts. Don't say it anymore because you don't act on it anymore. That's why I wanted to have this conversation. But now let's talk about the state of play and what the president has done with his words in terms of the election. Let's take a quick break. I'll bring in uh, a couple of people uh, with different opinions. We'll bring in April Ryan. We'll bring in Angela Ryan. We'll talk about the relative politics, but I wanted to talk to you first. We'll keep Scott Jennings. So, well, what was it like to be in the room where this happened today? How did it seem to affect people? It's an important perspective for you. Let's get that next. 
So look, we played for you what the president said, and we see that he is coming for revenge. He is coming to judge. He is coming for a reckoning. Now, here's the question. What does that do for the state of the race? Does it intensify those who support him, as we have seen in the polls? And at the same time, does it create an opportunity for those who would oppose him? Scott Jennings is back, bringing Angela Rye and April Ryan. Scott Jennings is back because we disagree on an issue, but that doesn't mean we don't like each other. We disagree with decency. We have the conversation, and it's good to have them. Yeah, you may take a poke at me if we were in the same room, but we're not, so it's all good. All right, April Ryan, you were uh, in the room where it happened uh, today. What was the experience like in terms of the effect on the audience of the president's words? Well, uh, the president used words uh, bullshit as well as the words sucker. Um, it was surreal um, because earlier in the morning he was at a prayer breakfast and he was... Uh, angry, but he was in a celebratory mood, thanking everyone and regaling about how all of this happened over three years ago. And the crowd gave him extended ovations, but there were two names that the president omitted that were uh, deafening to me, the silence of these names, Mick Mulvaney and Rudy Giuliani. He did not thank either one, and you did not see, I did not see Giuliani in the room, uh, nor Mick Mulvaney. So um, today was a victory lap for the president, but there's still something going on. The president almost seemed like uh, he was trying to relitigate this to get people to believe him that he was innocent. And he kept saying he's done nothing wrong. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Angela, here's the question for you. Uh, his numbers get a little bit of a bump up through this most difficult period uh, of the impeachment trial. Let's take that as a suggestion of um, significant, if not unique, resolve of those in the Republican Party to see him succeed. What does that do to the challenge of trying to replace him with a Democrat? Well, I think it goes right to the heart of um, what has been the problem of Democrat strategy, and that is to say that they're going to go hard after voters um, that they lost in 2016. Um, trying to go and cut into the Republican base is not a good strategy. What is a good strategy is to realize that what's gone is gone and to buckle down and get the people who have long been your base, and that is black and brown voters. That is newer voters, young voters, registering new folks, ensuring that folks who have been disenfranchised and are returning citizens can vote. But to try to go and turn Trump voters who, as we just saw in the last segment with your hypothetical ask to Scott, is highly problematic. Mor morals be damned. Um, that is not what drives um, Donald Trump's voting base. It is um, bigotry. It is fear. It is um, judges who have lifetime appointments that may be pro-life, but they want to kill off everyone else. Um, there are civil rights. Um, Folks, they want to ensure the death penalty continues to exist. All of these other things that fly in the face of morality and what I believe is a social justice gospel, which is the one mm. of, for the God that I serve, who is also Jesus Christ. Mm. Right. Look, I, I get it. And Scott, I see a roll in your eyes. You don't agree, but they don't agree with you that Democrats want uh, abortion no, as an I, ATM. No, I don't, I don't and agree with being called a, a kill a baby. I, 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 I don't I don't agree. I don't agree with being called a bigot for being a, a conservative a Republican. No, I, you're right. You're 100 percent right. You did. You said Trump supporters no, are motivated by bigotry. That. 
That is exactly what you not, said. Scott, that's Scott, your word, I'm not mine. Big and bold enough to say Scott is a bigot. If that's what I think, that's not what I said. So don't put words in my mouth. You've been doing a good job of doing that to Pete Buttigieg, right, so, and even Chris Cuomo, but not today. <laughs> you, you said it. Right, I mean, I don't I'll know what you want me to tell you. You used the word bigotry. Run, Scott, run let me ask you this. He rolls his eyes <laughs> no. all the time. Moving Hold on, on a second. I'm fine with that. Listen, I can Scott, do it I know what she said. I know. I know what she said. I don't let people call people bigots uh, on here. I don't have bigots on. She was talking about. Um, Trump voters and an aspect of them that she believes that that's why the message resonates. I don't have to explain, Angela. She does well for herself. What I'm asking you to explain is this. Um, Is it part of the calculus politically that what the president is saying doesn't just rev you guys up, but revs up people who don't like that kind of talk? Uh, the divisive talk uh, and the idea of being vengeful and separating people are you worried about him stoking not just his people, but the Democrats? Well, my view of the Democrat opposition to President Trump is that it has been fairly consistent since the beginning. I mean, if you look at his numbers, uh, you know, there's been a steady, you know, mid 40s that disapprove of him. And obviously, according to the polling on impeachment, want to even throw him out of office. And so I'm not actually sure that it would be possible for him to make them go any further than they already want to go, which is to impeach and convict the president. So I would anticipate them uh, voting against the president. What I think he has to do is a couple of things. Number one, I think there are millions of people in this country who are not registered to vote, but might be inclined to vote for him if they were registered. That's number one. Number two, I do think he has room to run with uh, the African-American community. I think he has room to run with the Hispanic oh. community farther than the previous <laughs> Republican presidents did. And I also I think, look, if he were to improve his numbers by four to five points among uh, female voters, he's probably a lock for reelection. So I think those are the kinds of things he's going to be focused on. And incumbent presidents have the time and resources to do that. I, I think that's what they're doing. Right. How many uh, of your friends uh, out there, April to- Ryan, are, are feeling the suggestion? Uh, Not. Zero. Goose egg. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, If there was a chance for that, the State of the Union really turned a lot of people off. One, the main issue, and, and, and don't get me wrong, we never wish any ill on anyone who is sick or dying or has cancer. But for him in front of the nation to pander for black votes and then give Rush Limbaugh the highest medal a president can give, this big, Rush Limbaugh is a bigot. Rush Limbaugh is racist. Rush Limbaugh was a birther. And for him to do that, and and he could have given not only uh, gold stars to the Tuskegee Airmen, he could have also given him that that presidential medal of freedom. This president goes from Charlottesville to to S-hole nations to giving the medal of freedom to the whole world to see to Rush Limbaugh. That is a big contradiction. That's hypocrisy. The black vote is too precious and there is a lot to lose and a lot at stake at this moment. All right, I'm out of time. Thank you very much, Angela Rye, April Ryan, Scott Jennings. Appreciate it. All right, Uh, there are people on the fence. You know, I keep telling you, you know, we are not just our politics. There are a lot of people who aren't sure uh, about the president, and they gave him the benefit of the doubt. And you hear from even some Republicans, uh, like Senator Susan Collins, you know, I think uh, that he learned a lesson from impeachment. But they're right, the president learned a lesson, okay but not the one they were hoping for, and that is the basis of the argument. Judgment is coming ahead.
imagine it took just four years to go from this. I accept your nomination for president of the United States. To this. I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. And yet now the party bears no resemblance to its traditional self. I mean, the issues are there. Romney even said he votes with Trump 80% of the time. But the values, they have been, I argue, eviscerated. Literally, the guts of their character counts and live your faith has been changed to this. It was all bullshit. And he isn't just talking to the Democrats or the media. Republicans are just as in his sights as anyone. He mocks his own party, its members and members of his base when it suits him. My argument is we are all in the same boat, my brothers and sisters. If you don't do Trump right, he will do you dirty. You see where the guy is devoted to him? Remember him? His life devoted to Trump as his lawyer? Prison. Remember his longest political advisor and what's going on with him right now? You see Trump come for either of them? No. You see who he singled out for honor during Black History Month? Don't buy this, that's just how he talks, jazz. I wouldn't say it that way, but that's like saying lions snap the necks of animals and disembowel them because that's just how they are when they're hungry. Look, those who try to rationalize supporting obvious wrongdoing like this. I believe that the president has learned from this case. Really? Just a day later, here's what the senator realized. So why do you have that feeling that he, he has changed, that he learned a lesson? Well, I may not be correct on that. It's more aspirational on my part. And that was on Fox. Aspirational. Who changes bad behavior when the behavior is validated? This is what your aspiration led to it, what was supposed to be about inspiration. This president worships success. This is what he did at the prayer breakfast. He attacks the very basis for faith. He mocked Romney for acting on his faith in his vote. Then you have some that used religion as a crutch. It's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly. All right, remember the line religion as a crutch, okay? I'm going to get back to it, but two points. One is about fact and then the one about faith. Yes, it's true. Romney lost in 2012 and Trump is president, but Trump didn't outperform Romney. Romney got a bigger share of the votes than Trump did when there were less votes to be had. And Romney was up against a popular incumbent Democrat. Now, one reason that Trump may be so Obama obsessed is because he attacks what he fears. And he has asked more than once if he would beat Obama because he knows and hates the answer. But forget about the politics. Trump tells you all you need to know by describing faith as a crutch. He meant it as a slight, right? He doesn't get that that's what faith is all about. Those who choose to believe do so why? They're not enough for themselves. Recognize your flaws. 
We desire forgiveness. The idea of through grace of God getting to a place that is bigger than ourselves, that can make us more and better than we are without devotion to something bigger than ourselves. Trump has showed you time and again he is about none of this. He is a man who told you he has never needed forgiveness from God. Find me another Christian who says they have never needed forgiveness from God. While he judges the faith of others, and you just saw him do it, it is not my place or profession or inclination to judge his own. I'll judge myself and not well and with good reason. But there is judgment to be passed here twofold. You members of Congress who say faith matters to you and you support him, you better own how he is, not just what he gives you, not just the judges, not the pats on the head if you help him stay in power. And if you don't want to judge yourself, it's going to come anyway, and here's why. In Congress, there is judgment of you. The election is coming, and voters will judge what you have done. And remember this, they're also going to judge why you did it. That is the argument. Now, with a straight face, the president barked in his wild speech about nepotism, going after kids like Hunter Biden. How dare they make money off their family name? Hello, self-awareness, anyone? We're going to follow the money next. They don't think it's corrupt when a son that made no money, that got thrown out of the military, that had no money at all, is working for $3 million up front. Is Ivanka in the audience? Is Ivanka? Boy, my kids could make a fortune. I think they could make a fortune. It's corrupt. They are. Ivanka obtained more than a dozen Chinese trademarks since entering the White House. Don Jr. and Eric Trump received government approval last year for a major expansion of their golf resort in Scotland. So far, they've unloaded more than $100 million of real estate holdings with their father in office as president. You don't think that demands a premium? Follow the money, folks. All right. Thank you for watching. Time now for CNN Tonight with D. Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.